The security clearance process is complicated. Maybe you find yourself applying for a position with the national security community and then finding yourself with questions you don't know how to answer. Maybe you've held an active security clearance for decades and now find yourself wondering if you need to report that DUI or if your bankruptcy will be flagged under the new continuous vetting program. Security clearance policies are changing and it can be hard to keep up. Whether you're a security clearance applicant, defense industry hiring manager, or government agency, it's okay to have questions. We have the answers. Welcome to Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. Brought to you by your hosts, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley. Hi, this is Lindy Kaiser with clearancejobs.com and welcome to this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. With the rise in disinformation, there has also been a rise, I would say, in interesting online activities and especially related to women in the national security space. A timely topic for me now, and I happened to be lucky enough to come across Nina Jankowitz and her How to Be a Woman Online. I know it's like reading Rainbow. I can't help myself, but I'm always excited when I find a resource that's both timely and super relevant and super helpful around this topic. So really appreciate you taking the time. Nina is an internationally recognized expert on disinformation and democratization, has a huge breadth of knowledge that is far outside the scope of even what we will talk about today. So I really, again, appreciate your time, Nina, and your willingness to chat with me specifically about this book, How to Be a Woman Online Today, which is which is surprisingly tough. Yes, yes, it is. Thanks for having me, Lindy. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. So again, I recently came across and read this book. It's not a new topic. I think as long as the internet and the web have existed, people have found ways to use it to harass others, unfortunately. But it certainly does seem like more and more women, especially in the national security community, as we find ourselves represented at higher levels within this community, there is just more harassment that happens online. And it also just seems to be really hard to address. So I would love to kind of tap into your expertise on that. Are we truly seeing a higher volume of online attacks, especially against women? And then do we see maybe systemic reasons why it's seems to be difficult to address. Well, I think there's a couple of things at play here. First is kind of our own cognizance of the problem. It took me a while to realize how messed up it is that me and my female colleagues get a completely different tone, tenor, quantity, and quality of abuse than our male colleagues who are doing the exact same thing. And I think there's this narrative in national security, particularly, or in politics more broadly, that if you can't take the heat, you got to get out of the kitchen. And that's just nonsense. It shouldn't be a cost of doing business to have to deal with ridiculous, misogynistic, vitriolic abuse online. And I think we need to call that out. I think there's also, especially lately, especially over the past year or so, there's this content moderation of censorship narrative that has started to prevail, that any sort of content moderation that's happening online is actually censorship and that people are allowed to express their opinions. But these are opinions that if they express them to you and me on the street, we would probably be able to get a restraining order against them, right? Like these are often violent, really misogynistic or threatening statements that people are emboldened to make online, partially because of the anonymity that online interactions provide, but also because it's become quite normalized to make these sorts of statements in our body politic today. And so I think we need to call that out as well. And that's one of the reasons I wrote this book to help women recognize, A, it's not normal, and B, we have to stand up for ourselves, call it out when we see it, 
and really hold our digital ground. Yeah, no, I love that. I think there was something about how when you know something's happening to you, you're less likely to get upset about it. It was almost seeing things happen to my peers that I had like this reaction, but then it enabled me to kind of vocalize, oh, this similar thing has happened to me and that community around that, which you also speak to in the book, but that's a really powerful thing too. I think we have a tendency to want the focus to be on our work rightly and not to take away from that by like spotlighting, you know, this online abuse that's happening. But then if you never share it, then you kind of sometimes don't realize what's happening to other people around you. So the community element of it, which you referenced there, I mean, that's, that's super powerful and important. And then I love that the book also has a lot of practical advice and gives different avenues to pursue. I think as a victim, you tend to feel unempowered. So I appreciate any time that there's a kind of a resource like this that says, hey, this is your own story. Like this is what some people have done. This is what these are some other examples, but there's no one size fits all approach. And why do you think that's particularly the case for kind of online abuse and harassment? Well, I think it's a little bit like dealing with stress, right? Some people go to yoga. Some people go to kickboxing. Similarly, when we're dealing with with stress, people are going to have different levels of comfort for for how they address things. A parent is going to react differently than somebody who doesn't have kids or somebody who's located on a different continent necessarily. Some people are going to lock down their own cats. Some people are going to engage in flame wars. I personally wouldn't recommend either of those two tactics, but it's all about kind of who you are as a person, your level of comfort in, in reaching out to people, your level of comfort in speaking out and putting yourself out there, and your personal kind of sense of engaging online. I personally love to use humor to call out some of these things because it kind of diffuses the tension a little bit. It flips the script back on on some of the people who have been trying to push me out of public life or push me out of the spotlight and says, you're acting like a ridiculous little child, right? And it also at the same time educates some of the people who follow me. And it's about what allows you, again, to continue holding that space and putting your voice out there. Again, it's going to be an individual approach and having like respect for the different approaches people take is really important. I also appreciate that the book outlines that companies should, I think, feel some personal responsibility for their employees who are engaged in this space. And if you're putting yourself out there for your company and then that's leading to online harassment... And there are steps that companies can take. And I think I have been very supported by my company and I very appreciate that. And they know I'm kind of out there, maybe more than they would prefer sometimes. And so because of that, people unfortunately respond sometimes negatively. And again, this, you know, online harassment, misogynistic activity that is out there on the web is a problem. So can you kind of speak to that? Like what are steps that companies can take and how should companies help protect their employees in this space? Yeah, this is a really important point because personally, I went through an experience where I was a political appointee in the Biden administration and I thought the USG was caught really flat-footed with how they responded to the harassment and abuse that I was getting, even on a very, very basic security level. So I think the first thing to recognize is that employees need to know in advance what's available from their employers when this happens. We need to have policies proactively ready to go. And I'm happy to say that I've just instituted one at my own company this should include things like anti-doxing protection. There are programs that you can subscribe your employees to proactively. Again, this is not something that's going to work in the moment. So make sure you've got it set up before, you know, the proverbial S word hits the fan, right? So anti-doxing protection, companies like Delete Me or Canary are great places to start. You might want to have a temporary relocation policy set up for your employees. So if they do get doxed or if there was swatting at their residence, for instance, they and their immediate family members could be temporarily relocated to a hotel or another safe location until the threat passes. You might want to consider giving them support with law enforcement, you know, reporting instances of cyber stalking or other threats, making police reports. 
assigning somebody to temporarily take over their account for screening and reporting of threats, and then also mental health support, right? Take a look at your health insurance policies and make sure that includes some good mental health support, some robust therapy options for your employees. The final point that I'll make is, you know, we talk about this as women who are getting out there, who are expressing their voices for their companies, but increasingly, particularly in the national security space, there are just, you know, working level employees who aren't necessarily spokespeople or heads of mission or things like that, that are getting dragged into these unfortunate kind of conspiracy laden vitriolic campaigns online. And I think we have to recognize that this isn't just about the people who are out in front. It's sometimes about support staff as well. So making sure that everybody is up to date with their security protocols and that they know what's available to them under their company's counter harassment policy is crucial as we head toward probably what is going to be a really difficult year full of a lot of these conspiracies and campaigns. Now, I wanted to highlight this topic because I do think if you are anyone working in the national security space, quite frankly, but especially if you are a woman in the national security space, we are going to come up against this disinformation issue, which is your topic of expertise. It makes a lot of sense that you were an expert on this because you know there's just so much out there around, I hate to say it, the deep state and people kind of questioning national security, folks who are working in national security. And I think that the online harassment is only just going to increase. And I think there is, as we head into an election, so being proactive and understanding that we need to combat both, right? Combat disinformation so people know the reality of what's happening. But not everybody working in national security is is a part of this deep state apparatus. Like, you know, they're not out to like control the elections and we just have to kind of communicate that. And I think, you know, speaking to the mental health piece is big too, because I do think there is something about the very personal nature of the over-sexualization of the abuse that I think women uniquely experience, but pr- pretty much any minority demographic or marginalized individual in the national security space, there is just something about they hit into that identity in a way that that is just is very painful, I think, to receive, but also somehow is not considered hate speech by a lot of the social networking platforms or other platforms. So can you speak to that? It does seem like this hypersexualization, it just taps into something, but yet also seems to fly outside of the radar of what any social network will go up against. Yeah, I think it goes a little bit back to what we discussed before, that if you're out there in the public eye, this is just seen as the cost of doing business and the cost of engaging. But the truth of the matter is that when men are abused, it is usually not in a way that calls into question their very personhood or their value as something other than a sex object or a parent. I agree that, you know, there's just not enough recognition, both in the tech policy space, but also in our kind of legislative policy and infrastructure of the harm that is done to women through these gendered and sexualized campaigns. We saw that Taylor Swift was recently depicted in non-consensual intimate imagery, aka deepfake pornography. I've also been a target of deepfake porn myself. What some people might not know on this podcast and your listenership is that actually there's no federal level statute that is criminal or civil yet prohibiting the distribution or creation of deepfake porn. And I want everybody to sit with that for a second and think about why that might be, (laughs) because it just seems so simple to me. Like, this is not something that is artistic. This is something that is violating somebody's privacy. It can be extremely damaging. It's happening to high school-aged girls, and yet there's only a handful of states that have taken action on this, and we've not had Congress take action. So again, I think this issue not being solved at the federal level belies that women's safety and security is often not 
proactively considered and sometimes just simply not valued at all in these conversations. And so I've been doing a lot of work for the past seven years, really, to try to draw attention to this for the tech platforms. But as we discussed before, content moderation, trust and safety features, they're all kind of rolling back as we head into this election cycle. And so I think we all need to do what we can to raise the alarm bell. I would encourage everybody who's listening to not only, you know, report the harassment and abuse that they are getting personally, but to be an active online bystander. And this is a term that comes from my colleague, Shei Akiwowo, who runs a charity in the UK called Glitch, that is focused on ending online abuse against women, and in particular, women of color. And she says that we need to all make sure that we're reporting when we see terrible things happening on the internet. It is so important to do that. It sends really good signals to the platforms that say, hey, this person's sending a lot of abuse today. Maybe we should take a look at that. Now, whether that happens to change anything anymore since all the trust and safety staff have been fired, not all, but a lot, I think is a question that remains to be answered, but it's still an important signal to send. And it's a way that you can kind of express solidarity with the people in your field or in your circles who are going through this stuff online. That's a great point. And I think we can get so desensitized to it almost at some point that we're like, oh, it's not going to do any good. I'm not going to do it. But again, that you know, standing up for your community and seeing other people and having that volume, it is like a simple step that you can take kind of in solidarity with other people and hopefully to kind of see some change, you know, start to happen on some of these platforms, perhaps. But then knowing there's just like different approaches. I appreciate how in your book you talk about like there's different times when you, like, you had to step off. Like you just, if that, you know, for your mental health, for other reasons, like there's just knowing that it's not probably going to be a universal one size fits all approach for this. And there's going to be different, like as harassment ticks up or you're dealing with something very significant, you might need to take a different approach and then reemerge, reengage. But I think that too, I mean, that's an important message too, that we probably need to work for ways to make sure that this doesn't negatively impact women in their careers, which is, which is a big issue for me with clearance jobs. We're all about getting women into national security careers. Fortunately, in national security, you don't always have to be visible to have a national security career. So going to clearance jobs, you can have a password protected profile and be in that space. But there's other areas, journalism, media, marketing, where you kind of do have to present in public. And then if you find that you're getting harassment and negativity for doing that, how do employers kind of recognize that and say like, hey, we need to look at these candidates or these individuals and say, this person might not be able to get the reach online that this person does because doing so has a much higher cost for them. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I think this has been a worry of mine as I've conducted this research over, you know, a period of many years, we see high profile women up to and including the vice president of the United States being hit with these horrific, vitriolic, sexualized campaigns. And I wonder what young women are thinking. You know, they see these things. They see Kamala Harris being sworn in as the first female vice president of the United States. And then they see under it a bunch of misogynistic garbage. Are they going to want to pursue careers in politics? Are they going to want to make their voices heard publicly? And I've spoken to young women who said, you know, I just don't want a presence online that that's public anymore. You know, I I don't want to undergo that risk because they've seen what happens to women who do. And so I think, you know, we owe it to them to try to build a better internet. Here. Yeah, I love that. I and I, you know, I love that message, and that's a, hopefully a good takeaway from this conversation for folks who are listening or in a position to change things or improve things. So we hit on it a little bit earlier, but I want to touch on it again. Again, we are heading into a contentious election cycle. It does make things dicey, right? It makes it. I think it's going to, especially in the national security space, 
I think it's going to create more targets for folks. Other than climbing into a hole, like how maybe in this space can we engage over the next six months? Because I I would just prefer to not engage on anything over the next and see what happens. But that seems to be then just giving an avenue for all the crazy people to just talk and no one will think that there's any sane information. That doesn't even help with our disinformation issue. So as you're thinking about how you engage, and I do encourage you to do that and make your voices heard, first do a sweep of yourself online. We've got you know folks who, who have clearances here. You know how to do this, this sort of open source work. Try to dox yourself. See what patterns of behavior you can establish from your social media postings, the ones that are public. Think about locking things down if you think that they might open up some sort of security problem for you in terms of people finding out where you live if you're posting from your favorite coffee shop on your way to work every day. That sort of thing is really, it can be really dangerous if somebody's trying to follow you. But also in the United States, we unfortunately have no personal data protection laws. So it's really easy to dox somebody just based on public records. If you're worried about that, and particularly if you're in government, you think you might get swept up in one of these conspiracy theories, I would encourage you to look into a company like Delete Me or Canary that can help you stay on top of the mentions of you and your personal information online. And then also, depending on the jurisdiction that you live in, you can also approach your local kind of records office and say, hey, you know, I'm a government employee. I've been a target of attacks before. Can you reduce my footprint online? And you'd be surprised they can actually be pretty helpful with that sort of thing. So think about that proactively. And then this might make you groan, but the easiest thing to do to make sure that your personal data, your text messages, your photos, other personal information that you might have stored in the cloud is kept safe make sure that you have a password manager and multi-factor on all of the accounts you can put it on. And then I would also just say, think about the ways that you can build a community around your engagement online. Do you know other women in this space? Do you have other kind of allies in this space who, if the worst happens, can be there for you? So those are the three things that I would do proactively. There are lots more in the book, but those are the most important ones. And most importantly, I just think, you know, we all need to be engaging. Democracy needs our voices. It needs us to be expressing our opinions. And our democracy is more robust and more representative when women are expressing themselves. So I encourage everybody listening to continue to do that. I love that. That was a fantastic takeaway. I know we're heading into like Women's History Month, how to be a woman online. I commend it to, I work with a ton of employee resource groups, you know, dedicated to women and national security. I feel like every company who has one of those should be buying this book and giving it to all of their employees and reading those together and taking those tips. And there is like something about the community too. There's simple steps for cyber hygiene. But again, especially I would say women are in underserved communities. We sometimes have so much going on. It does take that peer accountability to say, hey, let's get together. Let's let's keep each other accountable. Say we're going to take simple steps to improve our cyber hygiene because we're going to need it heading into again, the next six months. Let's, you know, take some steps now to be proactive and to be safe. I so appreciate the work that you're doing. It is so important and so encouraging. We do need more women in national security and especially in mid-level, senior level roles to stick with it and to be sustained on that career journey and seeing people like you committed to democratization, to combating disinformation, which is going to be so important over the next six months is, is really important. So I really appreciate your expertise and taking the time to chat with me. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Security Clearance Insecurity with Sean Bigley and Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com. 
We're talking this segment about CUI or controlled unclassified information and whether it's CUI or CYA is the more apt descriptor. And Lindy, I I feel like this is a topic that's been coming up a number of places lately. I've written about it certainly on clearance jobs and I've seen other folks who have kind of been a little spun up about this in the government sector. I think primarily those who have to deal with it on a daily basis and are sort of tired of dealing with it. But is this a topic that you've seen come up in your discussions with folks in the industry? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's definitely been a hot topic. We do an FSO survey every year and we talk, we ask them about pain points and CUI. I'm glad you didn't call it CUI or something. I mean, those acronyms, man, they just, there's, they're weird no matter how you do it. We've had it come up for security officers as a pain point for a long time. The disconnect we see, and that's why I love this show and our chance to kind of have these conversations, because you have that wonky security clearance community, right? If you're a security officer, if you manage controlled classified information as part of your job, and then you have the day-to-day security clearance holder who, because of how the policy is kind of still rolling out, may or may not have heard of CUI or not know what it is. And I think there's still some, that's why that's where some of the confusion comes in. Like a lot of these policy changes, it goes out to government agencies first, right? And then you get industry with the standards. There's a lot more people working in industry than there are directly for the government. They obviously have a lot more information that could fall under this CUI umbrella, right? They have a you know, information that's not necessarily classified, but that is sensitive that falls underneath this umbrella. So for me, it comes up for clearance jobs, primarily just a lot of what in the heck is this? What is going on with it now? What is the current policy? What are the policies that they apply to agencies or to industry? But again, where I I think it comes up for me, and I think it's worth talking about here is I think probably the average person who's sitting in a desk with a security clearance right now may or may not know, have any clue or have heard what CUI is. Do you, is that your experience with the case or how have you come, how has it come across your desk? It's interesting that you bring up, you know, industry and contractors, because that's where I see this as the biggest knowledge gap, right? And to your point, you know, yes, a lot of people aren't really aware of this, but I think more people are maybe just sort of subliminally aware of the fact that this exists. They don't really understand what it is. They don't know how they're supposed to handle their responsibilities. And so the default becomes, well, let's just overdo it. Let's kind of label everything CUI. And it cracks me up. I'm actually writing an article about this. I think by the time this episode airs, the article may be out on clearance jobs. But this phenomenon that I've been seeing the last couple of years of government employees and contractors who literally include in every single email that they produce a disclaimer at the bottom. And you may have seen this that says, you know, this email may contain CUI or even better, you know, this email contains CUI. And it's funny on one hand, because it demonstrates just an utter lack of understanding of what CUI is and or depending on how you interpret it, some degree of arrogance, this attitude of, you know, well, everything I produce is so important that it must be labeled CUI, you know, and, and yet... I think it really just demonstrates a fundamental lack of understanding as to what it is that that people are doing. So I think it's important that we're having this conversation that people are educating themselves on what their obligations are, not because it's fun or exciting. Believe me, uh, this is 
beyond boring. I, I get it. <laughs> but because it's not going away. I mean, this is something that really is probably around for the long haul in some form or another and has the potential uh, you know, to have some real ramifications. So I'm curious, have you heard any horror stories of people who have gotten hung up on CUI issues? Or is this still so new that it's it kind of hasn't made it to that point yet? It's still so new that it hasn't made it to that point yet. But your example of folks putting it in their signature block is the perfect example that I give for how it's going to go very poorly very soon. Because as these agencies start to label everything, the issues we're kind of in, as I understand it, and this is not my wheelhouse or expertise, but we are in a bit of a gap right now, right, where we have kind of this overarching policy, but not a lot of nuts and bolts around enforcement, kind of like we have with, we had with like CMMC and some of the cyber regulations too. CUI kind of is periphery to all of that going on saying, hey, the government really wants to protect more information. We know that our adversaries are after, after things that aren't just classified. So we want to create pr- protections. The hammer's not there, right? So people are just looking at a whole lot of nails, but the hammer is eventually going to start coming. And if you are labeling everything CUI, yeah, I just think there's going to be issues down the road caused by the current status that we have with confusion. And Congress is looking into this right now with their legislation. They're saying, hey, yeah, we're classifying too much. We're not protecting what is classified. So we have top secret documents that are posted on a Discord server allegedly. And yet we're also throwing labels on a lot more stuff and potentially creating penalties around that. And again, I'm not seeing enforcement of that yet. I haven't seen anybody get in trouble, but based on how it's rolling out, I think they're paving the path for a lot of people to get in trouble. I 100% agree with both those sentiments to your latter point, sort of paving the path. As I sort of wound down my law practice, I was starting to see this I would say still uncommon, but alarming pattern where some, I would say rogue security folks were waking up to the idea that this could be a very potent weapon to use against people who they didn't like, or who maybe were making, you know, disclosures or complaints about things in the workplace that were inconvenient, things like that. And so we did see a very small handful of cases where it was sort of a game of gotcha. Like the government couldn't find any reason to necessarily get rid of somebody, but they would use this as a low hanging fruit and they would just sort of almost seem as they were making it up as they went along. Like, oh, well, we we found this issue with you mishandling CUI and the person was going, what is CUI? I've never even heard of this. I also agree with you 100% philosophically, like we have a huge overclassification problem and I am no fan of obfuscation and withholding information from the public. I'm a huge fan of government transparency. And so philosophically, I don't like the CUI program. I understand the intent behind it. And, you know, obviously predating it, there were things, there were, you know, kind of a a smorgasbord of other acronyms that agencies were using. And this was designed to sort of consolidate all of those and say, we're going to get rid of the old, you know, sensitive but unclassified SBU. And we're going to get rid of the, you know, other markers and designators that, you know, agencies were using. They were also causing confusion. So that's good. At the same time, I mean, you know, yes, we, we do have to wonder if it's contributing to this paranoia problem and this overclassification problem. And also, you know, the big irony of it, to your 
earlier point is when people don't understand it and they are labeling everything as CUI that's not, it, it does also have the potential to go the reverse way because just as you can potentially be you know, setting yourself up for problems rather by not complying with CUI, you can be doing the same by over marking things and, and improperly labeling things CUI that aren't because when you do that, it necessarily uh, obfuscates things like congressional oversight. And obviously in this day and age, that is something that I think both political parties are very fond of, depending on who's in power. And that is something that that I could also foresee becoming a problem. So, you know, do your due diligence, get out there, do some research, do some reading. If you don't understand something or you're not sure if it's applicable at your particular agency, go have a conversation with your security office and get that you know ball rolling because ultimately you don't want to be left holding the bag. My biggest takeaway here is they should not be allowed to create these policies unless they create training programs around them. Because what you end up is a lot of people that end up doing dumb things because they don't understand the policy that's put in place. Thank you for listening to this episode of Security Clearance and Security. Please note, the information provided on this program is intended as general information only and should not be construed as legal advice. Consult a security clearance attorney regarding your specific situation. Have a question about the security clearance process? Interested in submitting your own topic? Have a question you'd like us to address on a future episode? Drop us an email, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for tuning in to Security Clearance and Security with your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley. Join us next time as we continue to answer all the questions about security clearance careers you have, but we're too afraid to ask your security manager.